Welcome to Creating Synergy, where we explore what it takes to transform. We are powered by Synergy IQ. Our mission is to help leaders create world-class businesses where people are safe, valued, inspired, and fulfilled. We can only do this with our amazing community. So thank you for listening. Hey there, Synergizers, and welcome back to another episode of the Creating Synergy podcast. My name is Daniel Franco, and today on the show, we have a man who needs no introduction, and not because he has his own Wikipedia page, but because he's done some great things in his life, Jim McDowell, CEO of Nova Systems. Jim has 30 years of experience in both the private and public sectors, and before he joined Nova Systems, he was South Australia's top public servant in the role of Chief Executive for Department of Premier and Cabinet. Prior to this, he was the CEO of BA Systems for 10 plus years where he oversaw the purchase of Tenix Defence. Under his leadership, the company expanded to become Australia's largest defence prime with more than 6,500 employees and annual sales of approximately $1.7 billion Australian. He then moved to BAE in Saudi Arabia, where he took up the role of in-country CEO for the $6 billion business. Jim has also served as Chancellor for University of South Australia, and he worked in legal, commercial and marketing roles with aerospace company Bombardier Shorts for 18 years after graduating from the University of Warwick in England. On top of all this, he has been in non-executive director roles for Codan, RAA, Austral, and MicroX. On today's show, I really got to geek out on what has been and continues to be a stellar career. The wisdom and experience oozes from Jim's veins, and you can hear all this as we deep dive into his journey over the years. One thing that really amazed me was that Jim reads copious amounts of books, locking away a minimum of one hour each morning and night for reading, but has never read a management book in his life. Throughout the chat, Jim shares many stories and learning experiences, from his time in Northern Ireland where he grew up, to lobbying for Capitol Hill, and why the US has 50% of the world's defense spends. We then talked about strategy and how to stick to it and how to plan for it. We then talked about building trusting relationships with all key stakeholders. We also touched on what the future looks like for Nova Systems and their new beautiful rebranding that they've just gone through. And we wrapped up with Jim's thoughts on what's happening in the world right now with Ukraine, Russia, China, and how Australia sits within the geopolitical nature. I'm sure you're absolutely going to agree, but this was an amazing chat and it was an absolute pleasure to sit down with Jim. If you'd like to check out his profile, you can find it at Jim McDowell on LinkedIn and check out the Nova Systems website where you'll see their amazing new branding videos and all the great work that they're doing. Feel free to connect with me too, where you can find me at Daniel Franco on LinkedIn. If you'd like to learn more about some of the other amazing leaders that we've had on the Creating Synergy podcast, then be sure to jump on our website at synergyiq.com.au or check us out at Creating Synergy podcast on all the podcast outlets. Cheers. So welcome back to the Creating Synergy podcast. My name is Daniel Franco, your host and Today, we have the great man, Jim McDowell, CEO of Nova Systems. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks for coming on, Jim. My pleasure, Daniel. My pleasure. I want to, uh, I want to kick off the podcast with asking a really uh, generic question. Who is Jim McDowell and why do you have your own Wikipedia page? <laughs> I, I actually, well, I, I am that I am, to, to quote the Bible, uh, but 
I someone else um, posted that Wikipedia page, yeah. uh, and the initial content was about the controversy uh, about the, my fees. Oh yeah, for the I have read about that. <laughs> yeah, for for the um, expert advisory panel for yeah. the submarine. Yeah, you know, which 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 Mr. Xenophon took exception to. He, uh, he did. Yeah. So I sort of got whoever I was working for at the time to hijack the thing <laughs> and just fill it out a bit, yeah. with, a, with a bit more balanced material. Yeah. So that's why there is a Wikipedia. No, it's it's not actually mine. Well, you know you've made it when you've uh, you got your own wiki page. Yeah. yeah, actually, it is <laughs> given that you know, my my brother, who's much much higher achiever than I am, yeah. my twin brother, he doesn't have his own. Oh, really? So, so, I do. I do post him updates. <laughs> you know, Send him the link. Yeah. So your brother is the uh, is an archbishop, isn't yeah. he? An yes. identical twin. It's almost. Yeah. It's not, it's like splitting hairs. You can't even notice the difference. Yes. Yeah, so whenever we were children, um, uh, any photographs of myself and John, my mother and father weren't very inventive with names, James and John. Uh, <laughs> he uh, he, um, uh, I don't know who's me in the photographs. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah. I used to have to ask my mother before she passed away that uh, which one's me and which one. And she dressed you in the same clothes. Yes, well, of course, yeah, yeah. of course. It was de rigueur in those days <laughs> to be dressed in the same clothes. Yeah. Very good. So more on the question. So who is Jim McDowell? And, I, and I'm going to just rattle off a, a few, you know, your resume over particularly the past 10 to 15 years or so. Mm. So currently the group CEO of Nova Systems, two plus years as chief executive of the Department of Primary Cabinet, almost three years as Chancellor of University of South Australia, two and a half years of CEO, as the CEO of BAE Saudi Arabia, 10 plus years as CEO of BAE Systems Australia, Three years as managing director of BA Systems Asia, uh, non-executive director of Codan, RAA, Austral, MicroX, governor of St. Peter's College. And somewhere in that, you retired as well and started your own consulting firm. So yeah. that's an amazing resume. Tell us a little bit more. Well, I mean, it's all it's it's all pretty accidental. You know, there's no great there's no great plan yeah. involved because no one in the right mind would have, you know, if I didn't. <laughs> If I'd have dreamt that up and told someone about it, they would have said, you're telling me <laughs> fibs. Yeah. 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 So, uh, you know, I, you just look at what's next and what's interesting and, mm. what, and, and, and there's a couple of big things. You know, the big chunky things have been the defense aerospace shipbuilding industry, which you know, have been in for, you know, 40 odd years yeah. with, a, with, a, with a small small gap but even during that gap when I was consulting a lot of my consulting was with the uh, Department of Defense mm. yeah. so that's the big big kind of chunky career yeah. if you like is yeah. if the, I'm an unreconstructed defense industrialist really yeah. yeah and the other things were just stuff that happened that you know you get opportunities yeah. and life's about either taking opportunities or not taking opportunities yeah. and sometimes you're best not to take them as well by the yeah, way and absolutely some I haven't taken, which I'm glad I haven't taken, and some I haven't taken, which I should have taken. But yeah. there you go. There's a there's a slight anomaly in that resume being the government job. It completely sticks out as a different part of your world. And what was the decision to leave the private world and go into that government space? Well, I, I was in my, let's call it quasi-retirement phase then, so yeah. I was doing the non-executive um directorships and and the, and the consulting stuff and uh, um, whenever uh, Stephen Marshall became premier he decided he wanted 
somebody not from the public service to run the public service. Yep. Strictly speaking, the chief executive of DPC is yep. the head of the public service, yep. which is a bit of a chimera, by the way. Um, uh, and I thought, well, you know, you haven't done that. And they haven't been in government for 16 years. And, you know, a bit of adult supervision probably wouldn't wouldn't go, go astray. Yeah, yeah. And won't it be terribly interesting? Uh, some of which was true. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, and we had the bushfires and we had COVID and so yeah. uh, And we had the setup of the National Cabinet, which, you know, I got to sit in the first 31 National Cabinet meetings with, yeah. with the Premier. Yeah, so, wow. so it was just something that I hadn't thought about. Mm -hmm. It popped up and it was an opportunity. And I thought, well, this this will be worth doing. Yeah. This will be worth doing. But it is like riding a bicycle up a sand dune. You know, <laughs> you work very, very hard, but you don't necessarily get very and far. And things move very slowly. Things move very, very slowly. Did, did you... I'm interested in that first part of COVID mm. when the world was turning up, yeah. upside down. And I, I, I didn't actually have this question about COVID. I didn't want to talk about it at all. But now that you've brought it up, I'm really interested in your thought process yes. early on in that yes. pandemic and yes. and how you thought we were going to... Uh, it was, nobody knew. Yeah. There was no playbook, Yeah, you know, because we hadn't seen anything like that mm -hmm. before. Even we'd seen, you know, um, SARS and so on, but that was so limited in its, mm. in its effect. And then suddenly you had this thing that, that was clearly going to go, go wild. Yeah. And, you know... Uh, they closed the, the federal government closed the borders in, in January 2020. But we didn't do anything really inside Australia until April. Mm. So in March 2020, we had the last COAG meeting, so the, 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 uh, the coalition of Australian governments, yep. so all the states and territories and the feds, mm -hmm. all together in a big room in Parramatta Stadium. Yeah, wow. You know, the prime minister, all of his staff, all the first ministers and premiers yeah. and theirs. I mean, that could have been disaster. Yeah. Yeah, turned out it wasn't because the, yeah. the disease hadn't got a grip got. in well, the country I, yet. I was in Sydney for what is the Australian Institute of Company Directors yeah. Summit. Yeah. And you think about it, there's 2,000 yeah. directors from yeah. all around Australia yeah. in this in well, this room early yeah. March. It was... Uh, yeah, it was a well, I often say to Jim Wally, if we are flying in the same airplane, so the, the owner and deputy chairman, yeah. the founder and, yeah. and the chief executive, that if, we, if the airplane crashes, the stock price will go up. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. So it's a pretty, it's a very impressive resume. I, you, we caught up a few weeks back, had coffee. There was something that you said to me which blew my mind. I actually did an Instagram post on it and, and all the above. You have gone through all these years without reading a management book. Yes. Is that correct? That is correct. I've tried. Yeah. I started a couple. Um, but, you know, my, my, hinterland is art and literature yeah and i've yet to find a single management book that's well written yeah okay so you're the reason being because of the way it's written yes and, and also i just think that that the leadership which is really what i, I do because yeah. i'm not technically competent in anything other yeah. than the law yeah i'm not very competent in that either <laughs> uh is is really about life and life's experiences, mm. and I can find that much easier, and in a way that in, in a way that's written that appeals to me, in in literature, mm. right, in novels and plays. Yeah, yeah. It's a 
it's a pretty amazing statistic though i think like I, i'm i'm a big reader and and a, a, i have this thirst of for knowledge and i always look to those who have succeeded in business and read their story right mm. and read their the way they went about it so yeah. i can you know almost shortcut or fast track mm. my growth mm. uh and and mm. and so how did you learn from a strategic point of view or from a uh, from a leadership point of view in that regard I think there's two things. One, I spent a lot of time dealing with the military. Mm. And before there were large industrial organizations, which was sort of after the Industrial Revolution, before that, all industrial enterprises were quite small. There were large military organizations who had to be had to be led, mm. had to get the cert, had to have logistics, had to have communications, had, you know, had to have leadership, had to have purpose, all those things that modern companies talk about. And a lot of that comes from from military philosophy and military history. Yeah. Now, most of my reading's literature, but I still I do read, you know, one or two or three nonfiction books yeah. a month as well. Yeah. And, and, and a lot of them around that. So I just find that that, you know, if I read um hard times, yeah. I learned more about the human spirit, and actually more about industrialism because yeah. Hard Times was Dickens' book about yeah. about you know the yeah. dark satanic mills and yeah. so on. I, that was the easier way. Yeah. So it's it's you do what's easy, what what suits you, yeah. and we're all different. Yeah, and that's and that's what suits and that's what suits me. Well, they're the tried and tested methods, right? Those those books, aren't they? Really, yeah. yeah. Where we've all we've all learnt from those books. books. Yeah, and I find that that's the I could draw lessons from those books about leadership and so on, and communications and purpose and, and incentivization and human relationships and so on. So you said you three nonfiction books a month. How many fiction books a month then on top of that? Because I know you read about an hour or so every morning and every evening and every evening. So about a month, probably ten to twelve. Book, something yeah, like wow. that. But that's my hinterland. Yeah. You know, that to me is is pure pleasure. And I yeah. can completely switch off, which is really, really yeah. important. It's an, almost a meditation type. Yeah. 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 And I, I quite often read a book and then buy the same book two years later because I've yeah. forgotten to read it. I've read it. So it's not about like, you know, memorizing yeah, everything yeah, yeah. and so on. It's about the way you feel when yeah. you're reading it. So you said you had three to 4,000 books at home. Are you suggesting yes. that you've only got 1,500 and <laughs> there's a lot of double ups in there? Yeah, there could, there could only be two books there. And they're, they're, they're all, uh, yeah, yeah. No, that's that's brilliant. What? What is, what's your all-time, I will ask this at the end, but what is your all-time favorite? that you turn to quite often? Uh, probably it's, it's a trilogy. It's three yeah, books. Yeah. It's called The Sword of Honor Trilogy by yeah. Evelyn Waugh, yeah. which was written almost autobiographically about his experience in uh, being in the, in the Royal Marines at the, in the Second World War. Yeah, well, so the three, and, and he is one of the, he's one of the 20th century's greatest writers, English writers. Anyway. Yeah, a terrible yeah. old curmudgeon, yeah. you know, a horrible person, but... <laughs> But a fantastic, well, yeah. fantastic author. Yeah. And you're a bit of an art collector as well, I hear. Yes, yes, art and literature, those yeah. two, and particularly visual art. And I'm not yeah. terribly exciting in that. You know, it's mostly figurative. Yeah. Some some Aboriginal, some Indigenous art, some Irish stuff that I've kind of... I remember growing up in Belfast in a little you know, housing estate, a little council house in yeah. East Belfast. And my mum had a, some prints of a guy called Connor. George Connor. And I remember thinking if I if I could ever afford it, I'd like to buy 
Ooh. and I've got the four of them now. I managed yeah, to wow. I managed to ferret them out of our in auctions in Belfast and bring them over here. So brilliant. Yeah. Family kids? I've got two kids from my first marriage who are in who are both back in Ireland with yep. their with their mother both married. Um and uh, uh I've got a son from so my, my the, the current Mrs. McDowell, yep. as we like to call her, yep. is is uh, Korean. Yep. I lived in Korea for quite okay. a long time. And uh, um I've got one son with a, who hence the connection with St. Peter's College. Okay. He, he goes to Saints. He's in year eleven at St. Peter's, at the moment, which is a remarkable institution. Whatever, is, be, uh, you know, it's a remarkable institution. Beck Humble, mm-hmm. strategic uh, chief of yeah, strategy yeah. at Nova Systems. Yes, yes. She, uh, I looked at her text last night. I said, "Have you got any dirt or anything on uh, on Jim? On Jim?" And she said, "No, I don't." But ask him about Northern Ireland. So, and that's all she she said to me. Yeah. And he said he will know exactly what I'm talking about. You know, I grew up in Belfast in the in you know in the in the, in the late sixties, early seventies. I went to university in England, but that was to get away from my twin brother who was overachieving <laughs> even <laughs> even then. Um, and that was a you know a really interesting time, a really interesting yeah. time to grow up because you know 1972 when I was 16 was the most bloody period of the troubles you know there were yeah. there were 300 there was a person being killed every day mm-hmm. you know and this is a this is a country of only one and a half million people yeah well. so not only were quite a lot of people getting getting killed but everybody knew who was shooting who and who was bombing who it was a bit mm-hmm. like sort of kentucky mm-hmm. you know a bit of sort of um, family feud between one side which happened to be categorized in a religious sense but that's really not the issue um I, um, you know, my, I came my mother had a very large family, a dozen of them, and my father was an only child. You know, my father served his time in the shipyard and then worked in Short Brothers where I started work. He was a milling machinist. Yep. Um, my mum was a silver service waitress and used to be a housekeeper for the local clergyman and yep. so on. And, you know, we, we uh, had a great loving home. And nearly everybody I knew in school had some connection with the paramilitary organizations. Mm-hmm. And our side, it would have been the UVF or the Ultra Volunteer Force or yeah. the Ultra Defense Association, except for me and the Archbishop. Yeah. And that was because we were just much more frightened of my mother <laughs> than we were of anybody with a gun. <laughs> and, and, you know, if it hadn't have been for her, the story might have been, you know, completely complete. And I got yeah. a lot of friends who killed people yeah. and uh, a number of friends who were killed. Mm. Uh, and that's at the time it seemed you know a relatively normal thing because that's what was going on all mm. around you. But on reflection, it was probably an extraordinary time. Mm. And, well, to have this very strong uh, woman uh, to keep us out of all of that, mm. and again in retrospect, on reflection, is remarkable. Yeah, yeah. And I still go back and meet my first wife. God bless her, um, who I get along with much better now than when we were married. Um, <laughs> She, she said, why do you still go back to those old kind of bars and places that mm. you were when you were a kid? Because you're the chief executive of whatever you are. Yeah. And I said, so, well, these are my mates and these are people I grew up. The only reason these people like me and know this for a fact is because we all grew up together. Yeah. You know? <laughs> yeah. It's not because so, you're chief executive of this yeah, or whatever. Absolutely. They know your roots and where you came from. Yeah. So real comfort in that. Yeah. You know? And you know, there was mention- no money, but nobody had any money. So it didn't really matter. Yeah. You know, and it kind of, 
shoplifting was a was a sort of a, everyone was doing it was a hobby. It. <laughs> <laughs> you know it was fantastic it yeah. was a, and it was a great 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 time and it gave you great resilience as well it would have yeah. it would have a beer tastes the same wherever you go, really. Well, Guinness doesn't actually taste <laughs> no, doesn't the same it? wherever you go. No, that's, yes. And now this may well be a <laughs> mental trick, but but Guinness in Ireland anywhere is, seems to be better than Guinness anywhere else. Yeah, really? Yeah. Is it, why? Is it something in the it's, air or? <laughs> I don't know. And it's possibly not even true. Yeah. But we've all convinced ourselves of that. <laughs> the other thing she asked me to bring up was lobbying for Capitol Hill. Yeah, so when I went to the United States in 93, whenever Clinton was uh, was president, and um, uh, we had sold some airplanes to the United States Air Force, but very unusual for the US Air Force to buy foreign yeah. airplanes, particularly ones built in Belfast. And these were little square things. Yeah. But, you know, f- they were so slow, they used to take bird strikes in the rear, yeah. these things. Yeah, wow. And, but it was the right size to put one big shipping container in and the u.s air force used them to move spares around their their european bases and there were a lot of european uh, american bases in europe at that time it was called the european distribution supply aircraft and then it was transferred from uh, from the uh, um, air force to the national guard and then we had to keep it sold as they say you had to keep getting money authorized and appropriated Yep. For it, so it could keep in service, and at the same time, we made this really fancy little, very very fast missile with three darts on it, guided, laser guided, yeah. which for its time was way ahead of its time. Yeah. And this thing, you fired it from you were supposed to fire it from your shoulder, and it got to Mach three point five in less than a second. Yeah, wow. you know, this so we tried. We got some money. We had to go to Congress, and and lobby Congress and the and the and the user community to get yeah. funds for this. So I spent three years effectively doing the lobby yeah, wow. between uh, between Capitol Hill and, and the building, the mm, Pentagon. Mm. And it was a, you know, a real eye-opener. Yeah. yeah. What, what was some of the... Oh, the, 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 the amount of money. Just the amount. Yeah. So at that time, 50% of the world's defense budget was in one country, and it yeah. was the United States of America. It's not much different now, by the way. Yeah, wow. And, you know, the, jo- the old story of the judge asking the bank robber, why do you rob banks? Yeah. And he said, because that's where the money is. Yeah. You know, yeah. why, where else would you rob? Exactly right. And it's the same as why would you be in the defense industry and not be in the United mm-hmm. States, which is a lesson Australia needs to learn, by the way. Uh, and and the, the way in which in, in, in the UK and in Australia and in most places, Parliament votes money and, and the Ministry of Defense gets the money and figures out how to spend it. Mm-hmm. Almost sort of uninhibited. In the United States... The president, who is the executive, right? Whereas it's the cabinet here. The president hands down his budget in February mm. to the Congress. He's lucky he should get it back in November. Mm. So that's February to November. And quite often he doesn't because yeah. they haven't finished with it. They'd have a, have a continuing resolution. And in that period of time, it goes through the committees of Congress. And for the defense budget, for yeah. example, it's the, the authorizing committees or this the Senate uh, Armed Services Committee, the House Armed Services Committee, and on the appropriating side, the House Appropriations and the Senate Appropriations. And they are peopled by what we would call backbench members of Parliament, of the Congress, yeah. and they start to stuff that thing full yeah. of, of pork. Yeah, you know, wow. this, this is the pork barrel, right? Yeah, they wow. stuff this thing full of pork for whatever they're 
the district is. Yeah. Now they're all obviously very aware of national security and defence. Yeah. But it is a it is an an eye watering process to see, you know, these days seven hundred billion dollars, you know, being being That's being more. spent. Why and and for the excuse the naivety of the question but for the layman people listening in why does us spend so much in defense i mean yes they want to be the number one powerhouse but but why 50 yeah. percent of the world's well you know it depends so you know for the last since since the fall of the soviet union and notwithstanding what's happening in the ukraine and um, the united states was the single superpower mm. And, not, and I guess that's characterized in a number of ways, but one of them is a military superpower mm. and therefore the, you know, that's, that's money they kept spending. Yeah. But really since the Second World War, yeah. so the United States built up a huge defense industrial base during the Second World War. Mm -hmm. um, and, and that by and large has stayed, it's much smaller now, but still, but still very big compared yeah. to everybody else. And you have a sort of conspiracy theory on one side, which was sort of particularly prevalent during Eisenhower's presidency, of the military-industrial complex, yeah. which which is you know a, a, either either a passive or an active conspiracy to keep alive and thriving the defense industry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the creators do create a lot of jobs and a lot of technology. You know, um, Silicon Valley was founded on defense technology. Mm. Right, spin-offs from defense technology. Yeah. So there are other aspects to it as well. And then on the other side, you say the United States is the world superpower. And even when there's been two, which was the Soviet Union, it was all it's always been one of them. And yeah. now we're heading into this other world where we're gonna have a superpower in, in the East, in China, and and the US remaining. So it kind of feels as though it needs to it needs to continue to fund its its military. Which also means it's defense industrial base. Mm. So why would the Chinas of the world want to almost catch up? It seems like. Yeah. Well, you know, again, I'm you know I'm not a. I don't know what Xi Jinping mm. thinks. I don't know what the Chinese leadership thinks. But certainly, having spent a lot of time in Asia and having you know read fairly deeply both in public policy and in, in history. There's no China. Whenever it became, in its view, uh, unnecessarily humbled by, particularly the United Kingdom, mm -hmm. um, in the Opium Wars uh, and and the and the exploitation of China, believed. So the the, the Chinese the symbol for China, right? So the word for China, if you like, the histogram is a rectangle with a line mm -hmm. through it through it in the middle. And that's the Middle Kingdom, mm -hmm. and that doesn't mean it's that means it's the center of the world. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So, so China up until that point of time believed it was the center of the world, and there's an argument that says all it meant by that was people should pay tribute to it. Yeah. Should be tributary nations. Now I think that is the, the current China has translated that to mean we, particularly in our region, should be the should be the center, should mm -hmm. be the superpower. And in order to do that, we have to challenge the United States yeah. politically, economically. So they started certainly started economically, and now they're going to spend some of that or quite a bit of that wealth in building military capability. Mm. Is is the sort of historical view of that? 
we'll jump a little bit more into that after. Sure. I want to keep going through. So your career and, and you're now in the, you have found yourself in many CEO roles. There's, you can just go on Google and type in Jim McDowell and see all the great stuff that you've done in and I don't want to deep dive into that. But when we caught up a few weeks ago for coffee, uh, I asked you, what does success look like from a CEO's point of view? And you said to me that, uh, and it's something that really sings true to me, is that you see your role first and foremost in building trust and building trusting relationships within your leadership team and, and, the, and, the, and the company that you work for or represent. Mm-hmm. Can, can you elaborate? Yeah, so, so you've got, you know, you've got to... You've got to build more than a contractual relationship. You know, you have a contract of employment with yeah. your, your your employees. You've got a contract of sale and purchase with your customers. You've got a you've got a share certificate with your shareholders. Mm-hmm. But that isn't the totality of the relationship. That's a symbol of the relationship. Yeah. You've got to build a, a a very high degree of trust with each of those stakeholders. Now. And the analogy I like to use is a three-legged stool. Mm. So if if you're if you're building if if you're tilting too much toward your shareholders, as opposed to your employees or your shareholder or, or, or your customers, mm-hmm. then it's really hard to sit on a two-legged stool. Yeah, it's even harder to sit on a one-legged stool. Yeah. Yeah. So if you're focusing too much on the shareholder or too much on the employee, then it gets all out of balance. So you've got this equal. Now it won't all be equal every day or every minute. Yeah, it'll be a bit day. of a wobble here and yeah. there. But you will need to build that level of trust so that they will give you the license the social license, the business license, the entrepreneurial license to invest money to in, and, to in, and more importantly, to invest people's time mm-hmm. in the projects that you're, that you're embarking upon. Yeah. And, and I see, so I have this thing that chief executives should only do four things. Mm-hmm. One is they should set, they should certainly be the lead setter of strategy which gets approved by the board. So what's your strategic direction, right? And at the same time, they need to underpin that with a plan because the strategy is not a plan. Anyone who says the word strategic plan to me gets shot because mm. strategy is one thing and a plan is another mm. thing. Strategy is a strategy and the plan is how you execute, execute the strategy. Yeah. So you need to do those two things and communicate them. Correct. You then need to, to set up a system of review that tells you if you, you know, if you are doing what you said you were going to, if you're yeah. reaching your strategic goals, and that's you do that quarterly or monthly, yeah. whatever yeah. it happens to be, and you can course correct. So strategy plan, review that plan for progress and make course corrections. Employ and, and re- attract and retain talent, mm-hmm. you know, hardest thing of a lot, manage your stakeholders. Yeah. And if you have a CEO who's doing anything other than that, tell him to go away mm-hmm. because that's what he should be doing. Yeah. He or she should he or she, be doing. They. They. Oh, yeah, that's what they should be doing. Correct. Uh, and that's that's my, it's always been, and it's really good to have be simple. Sometimes it's good to be simple because you can always anchor yourself back to those things. You yeah. know, am I doing this? Is this strategic? Because if it's not, I shouldn't be doing it. Or if I am, why am I doing that? And I see more businesses, particularly small businesses, fail because of passion projects, yeah. because they get themselves waylaid from their strategic goal. Yeah. Look, I'm going through that, you know, managing director of, of my own business. And as you grow, 
there's the, the the cash flow problem. So you kind of have to pull yourself in there. Everyone's doing a bit of everything yep. and you lose sight of it. Sometimes you get you, you work some days or some weeks, you find yourself working in the business more than you're working on the business. But eventually as you grow, you, you know, if you're working for companies like BAE and, and Nova Systems, then no doubt, yes, those four things are the things that you should be uh, concentrating on. Just on the trusting relationships, is there a process that you go through? Like, because you walk in, you, I mean, the first thing you look at is your stakeholders, your strategy, uh, how we're, you know, how we're, you know, moving it and, and achieving to the strategy. You, as a new CEO, you would have ideas on what you don't like and what you don't think is working and where it can move. How do you go in and make change whilst trying to build relationships? Yeah, well, I mean, that's the thing about, about business, of course, that, that, you're you're always having to keep doing the business while you're doing the change. Yeah. Yeah. I think for so a couple of things. One, because I've been here for a long time and I've been dealing in predominantly the same pool, which is the defense industry. Yeah. And the one thing about the defense industry is that which is peculiar is that it's a monopsonistic industry. So mm. there's a single buyer as opposed to a monopoly, which yeah. is a single supplier. And over time, you build up strong, deep, deep, and strong relationships with those people. And the yeah. person who you met when he was a lieutenant 20 years ago is now a major general. Yeah. Okay. okay? And you better have built a set of good relationships yeah. with, with these people. And there's a whole number of ways you can do it. You can start by not always, not just going to see people when you want something, mm-hmm. but, but just going to talk to them, going to build a relationship. In Asia, particularly, you... You don't build relationships by doing business. You build relationships, then you do business. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. with your employees. Actually, with, with all of those groups, it tends to be about a bit about the what. Yeah. So you're saying, "I'm going to do this," and then you do it, or at least they know you're giving it your best shot. Yeah, and the how. Mm. So how you do things is just as important as what you do. People will always remember how you made them feel. Yeah. They mightn't remember a word that you said about X subject or Y subject, but they'll remember how you made them feel. Yeah. So my old mom, God bless her, had three, you said to me, I only want you to do three things in life. She said, be polite, help others, do your best. And I thought it was just old folksy, but actually she should have been working for McKinsey's, you know, <laughs> because those are, you know, so, you know, be polite means how you do things is as important as what Correct. you do. Yeah? yeah. Help others is leadership. Yeah. Right. And do your best is simply about purpose and trust and all of those yeah. things. So, you know, I could translate that into a very long management yeah. book, probably Absolutely. if I wanted to. Yeah. The, there was uh, one thing that was told to me early on in my career and I'm not so sure that I nail it every single time but it's definitely something in the back of my mind is that as a as a leader when you walk into the room people can instantly feel how you may be uh, presenting yourself right they yeah. instantly feel the energy that you would bring in and then as you leave the room you should always make sure that that energy is in the positive yeah in a, in a positive space. yeah look, people do it differently but there's no doubt that um, it's good to create presence, mm. yeah. And you know, so it also, you know, leaders, good leaders, are almost always optimistic people, mm. as opposed to you know. So it's better, as you say, to leave that sort of impression yeah. than than than. I'm not, you know, I say you will never get it right every no. time. Absolutely not. We're none of us. 
and I've got you know my B polite help others do your best wrong and all, but but it's still a guiding principle yeah. that I try to do. Yeah, no one's perfect. So you are a big believer in strategy, right? And you said so. First, you told me trusting relationships, but then second, you still about strategy, and you've you've obviously mentioned it. And you you have been quoted, and I'll quote here. If you have a strategy, stick to it. Don't be distracted by the side issues that may, and make sure that you're constantly cal- calibrating your progress against that strategy. It's similar to what you've just said yeah. now as well. Yeah, that's exactly rule number one. Rule number one. So I'm a lover of big shiny objects, <laughs> right? Like, and and um, there's this, and you in my career as a leader in in you know managing director CEO, um, and set a strategy but this beautiful shiny object over here of a new way of doing things that you, there's this fear of missing out if you don't grab it and hold on to it and how do you say discipline how do you know that your strategy is the right strategy well you don't know but you've 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 you've, you've hopefully gone through a rigorous process mm. to arrive at what that strategic position is so what you must keep doing is calibrating the assumptions yeah so the assumptions that underpin strategy mm-hmm. so if and when you're at Kodan for example you know you've got this fantastic um, goal detection business yeah but that would be based upon a number of assumptions one of which is the price of gold mm-hmm. right and, and and that might change you might have to change direction because of that mm-hmm. so make sure you you're really clear on what your what your assumptions are and keep checking your assumptions BAE um, has a lot of faults but it has an absolutely world-class strategic process, yeah. how you arrive at the end of it. It doesn't guarantee you're going to be right, but it puts yeah. a lot of rigor around it. And Beck Humble, who you've mentioned, yeah. was absolutely brought up in that. So I knew, whenever I arrived at NOAA, and she was already there for a year, I knew that the process by which the strategy had been driven was extremely rigorous mm-hmm. doesn't guarantee it's right but it was extremely rigorous yeah. and strategy should be aspirational yeah. right and strategy and Beck will hate me saying that strategy is relatively easy and execution is relatively hard yeah so you can always fail in the execution as well that's why you've got to keep reviewing your progress yeah. and say so you know have i got the capability how do i fill that capability gap do i buy something do i recruit somebody do I, you know how do you do, do a bad piece yeah. of software well, and look, and you know, I'm going through this at the moment, looking at our next three year strategy, doing the budgeting for the next three years as well, coming up to the financial year, all the above. One thing that I find really difficult, and especially we are a young business, so you know, only three to four years old, um, and you know, just for those listening, consulting firm in the change space, uh, working with businesses through large scale change, we. I, I find it really difficult, and I know this is something across the board that many new leaders and new CEOs potentially um, find is when you're setting the strategy and you said it's aspirational, there's an element of me, I don't know whether it's my logical brain or practical brain, however it goes, is I go, well, yeah, well, that's what I want to achieve, you know, whether it's a dollar value or whatever it might be. But based on these statistics, I'm, I'm not <laughs> based on these numbers that I've got, like that's what, how are we going to do that? Yes, well, how are we going to do it? Yeah, that's the plan. That's the plan, that's and the that's plan. when you then yeah. And if you you know if you can't if you I mean you can have faith and all of those, but faith is not a great plan. The faith is believing what you know ain't so. Yeah, 
And it, so you've got to you, you've got to say, how am I going to get from here to there? Uh, I'm going to have to do this and this and this and that, and then just keep checking if, yeah. you, if you're able to knock those knock those things. And that could be anything from I need somebody to in the company who I don't have at the moment who can do that, or I need a relationship with another business that brings yeah. that, yeah, or I need. In order to win this big thing, I need to win these three or four small things on the mm. way. You know? Yeah. And the constant recalibration. And the constant recalibration says, look, I haven't won that, and I haven't won that, and I haven't won that, so I'm not going to do that. Now what do I do? Yeah. Let's go through the process again. Let's yeah. go through the process. And we're talking, you know, my world at the moment wouldn't have anywhere near the rigor of it. And not to mention data that you would have at Nova and then what you previously would have had at BAE. So for those who are working in the small business space or in the medium business space where that rigor is not there, mm. what's the one thing that you should you would recommend to focus on? I just test your assumptions. Okay. Keep testing your assumptions. Because you'll have made some assumptions as to yeah. why you think you're going to be able to do that. Yeah. And, and if you think if, if those assumptions are right, you're going to do it, then keep trying. But if one of those or more of those assumptions prove to be fundamentally wrong or you can't fill the gap, then you better start thinking about something mm. else. How do you know when you've landed on the strategy? Oh, you, but, well, because you've gone through the process yeah. and the rigor and you've had smart people applying it. You know, smart smart exper experience is really important too, yeah. you know, because, uh, you know, particularly in, comp in complex areas, uh, so... Rigorous experience. Now, it may well be if you're completely blue sky, you don't have to have that experience because nobody else has it either. Yeah, you know, yeah. if you're Zuckerberg sat in wherever it is and yeah. creating Facebook, and nobody else yeah. kind of has that. Yeah. But but it, but experience and smart people um, uh, using a rigorous process will, will normally get you there. Yeah. Brilliant. So on Nova Systems and Nova's strategy... There's talk that you're on the track to become a billion dollar company. Is that? Yeah, well, look, you know, it'd be really nice. <laughs> Billions are really nice round number. <laughs> I, and, and, and if you look at the defense industrial architecture in, in Australia, you've got six big, big, big guys mm -hmm. at the top who are all um, uh, foreign multinationals with an Australian base. Here, primarily, primarily to sell and sustain their own products and solutions, do other things as well, but that's their primary yeah. reason for being. Then you've got a gazillion SMEs, yeah. Yeah, and virtually nothing in between. Mm. So we're about 350 million, yeah. um, given the money that's being spent in defense, the area of endeavor that we're in. You, know, we, that, you can see a pretty clear route to 500 mm -hmm. in a few years in that. Now, how they, so my task is how then do you make 500 much, much more than that? Mm. Because, you know, quite a lot of people could do get to that five, in my view, could get yep. to that 500 million. And the reason why I'm here is to, to do something just a bit better than that. Mm. And a billion seems like it. Now, I have never said a billion, but yeah. people attribute it to me, and that's fine because it's a nice aspirational yeah. number. And I can, I can see a way to get there as yeah. well. I can see a way to get there. How do you... How does your head uh, or your brain actually justify those numbers? Like it, it, when you say we're at 300 million, 350 million, the extra 650 million, yeah, that'll... Oh, no, no, you do it in chunks. So you say, yeah. right, we can definitely get to 500. I can yeah. see the plan, absolutely concrete. Here's the defense budget. Here's, here's what they're going to spend it on. Here's the positions that we have. We keep doing that and don't stuff up, you know. Yeah. 
then we'll get there. So I can see that concrete, clear. One of the nice things about dealing with government is that it's quite transparent. I have yeah. to publish their budgets. Yeah. I have to publish a thing called the investment, defense investment plan. So you get to see more or less where they're spending the money, notwithstanding you could have a big discontinuity like a war in Ukraine or something. Yeah. Um, you think, Hi, right, what else? What else can we do that looks like it's a near adjacency? Mm-hmm. That it's that's very very feasible. We can get a better position than we currently have. So let's look at something like essential services, which is state tends to be state government based, but you're still selling the government. Tends to be complex customers, same sort of things. Defence tends to be paramilitary in its in its you know communications and so on, helicopters mm-hmm. stuff like that. Mm-hmm. You can do that. Mm-hmm. I can build a case in my mind that says that budget and that part of that budget is that. I can get this amount of it with this amount of investment and these people or partnerships or whatever. Yep. So that'll get me to 700, yep. right? Then I can say, what, where else are we with our current customer that we can start to do something different? And at the moment, there's a couple of things that have come along, one of which is the guided weapons enterprise. Yep. So can we get a position? Yes, we can get a position in that. I've actually already got a position in that. Yeah. How much can we turn that into over the next few years? Yeah, let's can we grow it? Yeah. And now let's look at our core business, test and evaluation, certification and systems assurance. Mm-hmm. That's a very, very fragmented, very highly federated marketplace. What if we tried to make it a highly integrated space? And in order to do that, we'll need to convince the customer mm. who has either deliberately or, or, or recklessly or negligently or whatever, very federated. Mm-hmm. So how can I convince that, which is the government yeah. and the defense force, how can I convince them it would be better to be integrated and we should lead the integration? And I can t- actually see my way to doing that because yeah. I know a bit about the levers that yeah. you've got to pull, yeah. both in the department and in the pol- the political sphere that makes those, that, that those finally those big, big decisions get made. Mm-hmm. Now, we would be spending... Oh, well in excess of a billion dollars a year in that field. Yeah, yeah. And it's all very, very fair. We get quite a lot of it, so yeah. no, I'm, not, I'm not complaining. Yeah, yeah. But I'm thinking it would be much more. How can I, what would make him, make me his partner in doing this? Mm. I know what, I know it's going to be savings. We're going to, if we do this more efficiently, we're going to save. Mm. We're going to save money, right? And we're going to use the workforce better. And that's a big issue at yeah. the minute, is workforce. So well, that's, that, you just think your way through those you, things. You, know? you chunk it down, like you yeah. said. And well, that was going to be my follow-up question with the workforce thing. We, like as part of the strategy, uh, change work that we work with businesses on is the is the workforce plan, is specifically strategic. Uh, and how that uh, how, how the companies can go about that. If you're if you're going from say that three hundred and fifty million to that one billion number, obviously new products and everything as you decide, but the people aspect of grow, of that growth is going to be the most contributing yeah. factor to, to it, slowing that down, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. At, at, at the moment, it yeah. is absolutely at the and you don't have all that many levers you can pull in that, but uh, but you have some, and you know uh, also you can't create more people. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. But you can use them more efficiently, and the customer can contract more efficiently. So Correct. you can work on all of those things in the meantime. And then, if you know, if it really, really comes to 
push comes to shove, you can always acquire. Yeah. You can always go and buy another business. Yeah, right? Build, buy, borrow, isn't it? Yeah. Yes. Now, I don't, I'm not a fan, good fan of mergers and acquisitions because you, you, if you're the buyer, you always start at a disadvantage. The seller mm-hmm. always knows more than you do about mm-hmm. the business, always knows more than you do. And the, you will be expected to pay a premium for that business because yeah. it's worth more to you than it's worth to him is the theory. Yeah. Now, what is that premium and can you, can you deliver on that? Mm-hmm. But it is nonetheless. And look, the capital market, there's a lot of capital around at the minute. Now, yeah. with the change of exchange rates and so on, that, that capital market might not be quite as liquid as, as, uh, as it is at the moment, but there's a lot of capital running around chasing deals. Yeah, yeah? there is. And we have Jim and Pete, you know, the two founders of the business and their management team in the past have built a business from two people to a thousand people, mm-hmm. from zero revenue to 350 without doing a single capital raise. Oh, wow. Right, because it's professional services, yeah. business, capital light. Yeah. Employ somebody, give them a laptop, put them on a customer site, Correct. start billing. That's exactly what I'm doing yep. at the moment. So you've got about a three-month working capital yeah. sort of gap that you have to yeah. fill there, but that's about it. Correct. Uh, now we're starting to run out of people. Yeah. So I think we're going to have to start thinking differently about that. And we'll probably have to raise some capital. Yeah. And okay. that's either debt or equity. You yeah. know, it's the only two ways you can do yeah. that. Yeah. Well, if you ever need, if you ever acquire anyone and need people to bring um, those two businesses together, give us a call. We can help you in that. Well, Nova has brought five or six businesses yeah. on the journey. Yeah. 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 Some of which have had no business buying and others have been quite good acquisitions. Part of the uh, part of the growth plan for uh, for Nova has included uh, rebranding lately. Can you talk to us about um, that? Looks looks amazing what you guys have done there. Yes, look, it, it just seemed a good time. Yeah. You know what we 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 had a, a significant strategic review before I got there. We had a developed. You know, it's a bit like building a house, and you build it for two people, which is Jim and Pete when yeah. you started. Yeah. And 20 years later, you've got a 1,000 people trying to live in the house. Yeah. Yeah, so it's likely the plumbing isn't going to be yeah. quite good enough yeah. for that. And, scratch, and, and, yeah. and you've built it by putting a bit on here and a bit on there and a bit on here and a bit on there. So let's have a look at this and make sure we're as efficient as we can be in terms mm-hmm. of organization. Although that's kind of the last thing you do, sort of form always follows function. Yeah. So we've gone through all that exercise. What would look really complicated to the outside world, you know, at four of it, with four companies. Yeah. Five chief executives, yeah. believe it or not, <clears throat> and four companies, at least five, more than four companies. So let's simplify that and we'll put, let's let's make it Nova Systems. Yeah. Let's drag, you know, so with Geoplex with 210 degrees, with GVH, yeah. Aerospace and, and yeah. Nova, let's make it. Let, let, why wouldn't you do a rebrand at mm. the same time? Yeah. Yeah. Pull it all in together. Pull it all in together. Uh, give it a visible you know, a, 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 a visible sign that people can see. So I looked around, that four leaves are the four companies. Yeah. The orange, orange is a color that's much underused, yeah. but in, in, in branding, so so we thought- And so we yeah. use it. <laughs> and it's also the color of flight test. Yeah. So it's a yeah. bit of a nod to the past, to the, yeah. the legacy of yeah. the, the founding fathers of the company with flight yeah. test. You know, that's why black boxes are orange. Oh, really? Yeah. Because orange is the color of flight test, so anything to do with flight test and that is is, is oh, wow. it's painted orange. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. So why is it called a black box then? Because we like sort of black boxes are where stuff gets held and oh, secret okay. stuff gets held. Yeah, so it's okay. called a black. It's in the black box. Yeah, you know, yeah. let's have a black box, but it is in fact an it's orange. It's an orange box. box. 
So with the uh, with the growth and have you has, have you seen the benefits of, of bringing all those businesses together under well, this we program? have we have particularly uh, I mean a couple of relatively small things so far but so, the only thing about the defense industry if you're going to go below the line and play with the big primes and start is it's relatively slow burn you know mm-hmm. these, these big projects two three four years yeah but we have we have seen um, uh, a number of bids we've been able to make, which yep. we wouldn't have done if we hadn't tried to well, integrate the businesses better. Mm-hmm. So that's what's really, we're really at the start gate for that. And it's always, you know, by and large, integrated things work better than federated mm-hmm. things. Mm-hmm. You know, you don't want your your gearbox loosely collaborating with your with your clutch. Yep. You know, you probably want them integrated yep. in a single, and, and, and that's what we're trying to do. I mean, I see, in our UK business, for example, we just won the biggest project. That's not very big by Australian terms. Yeah. This is you know, a medium-sized business in the UK. We've won the biggest project that we've ever done. We wouldn't have been able to do that without integrating our businesses. Yeah, well done. How was the... The integration process was it smooth sailing. You're talking about five CEOs now with one. Yeah, well, group. we got that bit out of the way pretty quickly, yeah. actually, um, and people were pretty good about it. Yeah. Like I, I sort of ten percent of people hate it. Yeah, ten percent of people love it the bits. Yeah, and eighty percent of people are willing to give it a go. Yeah. So if you keep that, if you can keep those eighty, you know, and maybe convert a couple of the real naysayers, then you're doing. You've got ninety yeah. odd percent. And that, and I suspect that's that's where we are. People are prepared to give it a go. Yeah, no, I love it. Love the new branding. Smart people solving complex challenges, yeah. making our world safe. I think we should all be on that. Yeah, on that uh, yeah. on that path. Yeah. yeah, and if you're in our industry, you know, making you know purpose is really important. Yeah, you know, yeah. The this uh, the employee value proposition of you know making the world safe. The defense industry is you know, a pretty decisive industry in the sense where they're like, no, I don't want to go and contribute to the potential yeah. uh, um, yeah. destruction or yeah. or do I want to make yeah. the world safe and talk about the innovation that you, you know, yeah. we spoke about. And, you know, you know, so United Nations, you know, the rights, every nation has the right to defend itself. Yeah. Right? And if it's only the... The bad guys are defending themselves. To make a simple analogy, the good guys. You know, I'm really, really glad somebody invented the Spitfire. Yeah, <laughs> and, and and of course, and it's a perfectly valid position to have to be a pacifist mm. and not to want anything to do with that. Yeah. But it's also an extremely minority position. Mm. So I come from you know, and the people who decide on the rules with regard to the use of lethal force are. Parliament, mm-hmm. yeah, and the executive authority, mm. not me. Yeah. Now, but I perfectly understand if people don't want to take part in that enterprise because it somehow offends their sensibility. But I believe it to be a noble cause as well. You know, we absolutely love our diggers, mm. and so we should. Mm. These are guys who are putting themselves in harm's way. Yeah. But it'd be really good if they were well equipped and likely to survive going in harm's yeah. way. And that's the job of the of the defence industry, yeah. and I would much rather call it the national part of the national security apparatus as yeah. opposed to the defence industry. And people get very, very, you know, it's amazing just the change of of a of a word. Whenever I was chairman of ANSTO, the Australian Nuclear yeah. uh, Science and Technology Organisation, who runs the only reactor in the yeah. country up in Lucas Heights, and um, whenever we're looking for somewhere to to, because you have to get rid of your waste at some point yeah. in time. The difference between a nuclear dump and a nuclear repository 
Yeah. It's very different. Yeah. Yeah. It's a different emphasis. It's only one word. Yeah. It's a different emphasis. So you can use all sorts of emotional language to describe the defense industry as, you know, as, as arms dealers and weapons of war and, 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 and mass killers and all of that. Or you can use another set of language that says protecting those that protect us and giving our diggers and all of our, our service people, you know, the best equipment that they can to yeah. protect to protect us. To protect. Yeah. So I happen to have come down on one particular sort of side of that, which most people do yeah. come come uh, come down on. But I accept absolutely that it's valid to have another point of view. Yeah. So Nova Systems, um, what's the Indo-Pacific um, yep. at the moment? Uh, it's it's the, the, the show's on at the moment or the, the conference. And you, Nova Systems had an, the inaugural SME uh, uh, summit, yes. I guess it was called, yeah. where you, when you mentioned that the opportunity for SMEs to be involved in the defence industry right now would likely never be repeated again. Can you explain... Your thoughts around yeah that. look i think i think i mean it's a big industry so yeah. there are lots of smes yeah no doubt but if you look at what's happening at the moment um uh in both geopolitically with with the growing the growing seen as threat mm-hmm. of china the war in the ukraine and what happens if you're not properly equipped the increase in the defense budget the commitment to AUKUS, so which will become a treaty eventually, I assume, yep. between Australia, the United Kingdom and the United States, yep. and the access to capital. Though that confluence of events, I suspect, I haven't seen it in the 40 years that I've been in the mm, industry, yeah. so I suspect it won't repeat itself very mm. often. So it's a seize the moment, it's an opportunity, it's a carpe diem yep. time. And, and uh, we have 350 suppliers, most of whom are SMEs. So and apart from the fact that it's, like, it's good to talk to them about what we think is going on and how we're going to do things yeah. and so on, it's also, you know, if you're, you know, you know, if you're in your business and you're a small or a medium-sized enterprise, you're, you know, you're head down, bum up, working like a one-armed paper hanger, <laughs> you know, and you maybe don't have time to think about a yeah. point. So, it, it, you know, and, and we're not huge, but we do have people like Rebecca Humble, yeah. you know, who have been in the industry for 25 years. Yeah. And have just thought about this really deeply for a long time, mm-hmm. just to come along and do a 15 or 20 minute or half an hour, but it takes back half an hour yeah. to do, you know, to, then that's a great, I think it's just a great thing just yeah. to, for people to lift their head for a half an hour and listen yeah. to that, yeah. It is. It's exciting. It's scary though, right? In the same in the same process. And I think like if we talk what I'm talking scary from the layman's perspective or someone yeah. that's sitting out on the outside, yeah. you obviously have much more uh, of a clearance to understand really what's going on. But yeah. but you're you're big on sovereignty, right? Which is the ability to defend yourself, isn't but it? Sovereignty means control. Control. So it's so a control to defend yourself or so they have control. So if you start from a basis of the word, mm-hmm. so don't forget I'm a lawyer, so words yeah. mean quite a lot to yeah. me. So so sovereign to be to have sovereignty over something is to have control over mm-hmm. it. Now, it would be extremely naive for us to think that we could have sovereign control of all elements of our defense. Mm. We we rely, obviously, on our allies, particularly the United States, and the ANSYS Treaty has been yeah. the core of our defense posture for uh, since the Second World War. Yeah. 
Will we ever, ever, ever be able to design a nuclear submarine? Highly unlikely. In fact, at my view, at a cost that you know that pay, that that we could bear. No. Yeah. Okay. So, what's the best position we can get in that endeavor? The best position we can get is probably privileged access. Mm -hmm. So let's settle for that and make that as best that we can mm -hmm. with, with the United States and the United Kingdom in this yep. case. And you work your way through what's important to you, military aircraft. Are we ever going to build fighter, you know, fighter jets again? Design? No. Right? Mm -hmm. It's just the cost. Mm -hmm. So again, privileged access. And you work your way through these things. And you come to a, a, a position that runs through each of them called test and evaluation, certification and systems mm -hmm. assurance. Can we be industrially sovereign? Yes, we can have 100% control of that. And that's the business that we are in. So the analogy I like to draw is the motor car industry, mm -hmm. where we could design, manufacture, sell, sustain, and export high-end motor vehicles. Now, did we decide not to do that? No, we didn't decide not to do that. Some people in Detroit and some people in Tokyo decided that we were not going to do that. Yeah, okay. Yeah. So that decision was taken in their interests. That might be in our interests as well, mm. but their interests are not necessarily our interests. Mm. So as Disraeli said, we have no permanent friends and no permanent enemies, only permanent interests. Mm. Right? And that may well not have... So for me, sovereignty, if you can gain it, and there are many positions you can't gain it, is only an Australian can turn you off. Mm. Okay. Right? That's my definition yeah. of real sovereignty. We will have to accept less than that on many occasions, but we shouldn't if we don't have to. And that example I've given of test and evaluation, certification and systems assurance is one of them. I want to I want to ask you a question on and again asking from and toilet rules you should never give up sovereignty yeah over, over <laughs> but the toilet rules toilet toilet yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah we wouldn't try not to bring up the pandemic again um if if we are in a world where we are building these new nuclear submarines and you know there is a certain amount of time that it's going to take to build these uh, these beautiful things but right now the threats now right yeah. <laughs> can, can we uh, and I'm really going to ask this from from a point of having no idea. Can we protect ourselves now? Well, you can't protect yourself because because you've got allies. Yeah. And you know, I won't go into the whole nuclear submarine debate. So I worked for a company that built nuclear, both yeah. nuclear powered submarines and nuclear armed submarines. Mm -hmm. We're talking about nuclear powered submarines in this particular yeah. case. Yeah. Um, whether or not that can be done in here in the right time is an open question yeah. that's being looked at by Admiral Maiden, this yeah. task force and so on. But we have a set of allies, and particularly the United States and now increasingly the United Kingdom and NATO, mm -hmm. uh, that, that when we talk about the coalition of the willing, it's really the United States, the United Kingdom and Australia, mm -hmm. right? Are the key players. Yeah. So yes, we can. Is that, is that, could we get do it better? Yes, yes. And, and look, the 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 benefit of nuclear submarines, the major benefit, because you know, so usually it's quite a complex question, is range and endurance. Mm. Now, if you're defending Australia against an attacker, range and endurance is not so important. Mm. Right. 
-hmm. So the, the, the scenario we were thinking about before is not necessarily the scenario the war planners are thinking about now. No. Yeah. Yeah. Because actually diesel electric boats are quite often quieter than nuclear boats. Yeah. And what's the other strategic advantage is you don't know where a submarine is. Mm. That's you know, one of its major strategic advantages. And therefore, the quieter it can be, the better. Yeah. And a nuclear boat engine, its generator, its nuclear generator, runs all of the time. That's a little bit noisy. Okay. Whereas a diesel electric boat comes to the surface, takes in a bunch of air, recharges its generators, right? Goes back down again and uses the batteries. So that's just it's just it's just powered up. Okay. That's very very quiet. Now it has to keep coming up for air. What is sort of called snorting in the yeah. business? Yeah. And, yeah, then, yeah. and then goes back down again. Yeah. So that you know, that's a weakness, obviously. But when it's actually running on its on its on its battery power, it's very very quiet. So excuse the naivety here, but can't we build both? <laughs> uh, well, that would be. That would take all the whole defence budget yeah, okay. and more possibly, okay. and so, we are we will have both because yeah. Collins will be going yeah, for quite well, a long yeah. time yet. So yeah. we've already built half a dozen of yeah, the diesel yeah. electric submarines, which we are, and they're, they're, they haven't had a great deal of use. You know, it's one careful owner never raised a rally. Yeah. So so I think there's quite a lot of life in those things. Certainly in a in a in a in a, in a, in a physical sense and in a sense of fatigue sense. Yeah. And it's the systems that you have. The systems that you have to upgrade now. This again, from a point of view of having a limited defence and military experience, but if, if Australia seems to me like it would be a pretty safe place to be, regardless, just given the fact that we're surrounded by the ocean, right? Is that not true? Yeah, well, you know, we were surrounded by the ocean whenever Japan attacked as well. Yeah. You know, that was a long time ago, and they had much, much, you know, the aggressors to death that were there would have much more. Um, capacity to do it, so mm -hmm. you know it's not a not a bad place to yeah. be, but we're by no means impregnable. Yeah, okay. So hence the reason why we need to yep. learn how to defend ourselves. Yeah. So moving into another aspect of of the world that you play, which is leadership, uh, and, and something that you know I'm pretty passionate about, and our listeners are, are pretty passionate about. It. I want to learn a little bit more about your leadership growth as you uh, as you sort of rose through the ranks specifically early in your years of being CEO what were some of the what were some of the lessons that you learned from leading a defense company uh, early in your career and and what did you learn specifically about your own personal leadership style yeah uh, again I, and it's a, a view that I still hold the f your first leadership job, what you're a first line leader, when you've probably got a small team of half a dozen or whatever, yeah. you're, that's where you develop your your leadership style, and it doesn't change very much. Yeah, you might get a bit more training, a few more tools, a bit better at communicating, and you go and do your training and all that sort of stuff. Yeah. But that's where you learn. First line, first line leadership is the other than so that the. the the very kind of top of the tree in a company is really, really important for strategy setting and so on mm -hmm. and tone. But the underlying ability to deliver is driven by your first line leadership and you should pay a lot of attention to mm -hmm. first line leadership because of that, because they touch everybody in the company. Yeah. 
and because that is the style that is developed there will be the style that stays with those people all the way through their career. Yeah. So do you invest money into your frontline leadership in well, growing their capability? Yeah, well, certainly any other any businesses that I have worked in in the past, we absolutely have. Yeah. And it is the tool that we use for cultural integration. Mm -hmm. So when you buy another company, the first thing we used to do was get all the first line leaders trained in the same way as the existing first line leaders mm -hmm. in the company that we're in. Yeah. So, so say when BAE bought you're speaking the same language, right? That's yeah. what you want to Yeah, you get them in, the former cohort, they're speaking the same language, got the same values, got the same tools, right. yeah. all of that stuff that brings cohesion yeah. and, and, and culture, which is just how we do things mm -hmm. around here. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and uh, you need to you need to pay attention and spend yeah. money to do that. Again, with the with the change work we do, culture is a big part of that. So it's essentially the human part yeah. of the business is yeah. what we look yeah. at. And, and leadership, as you can imagine, any change program needs really great leadership. Mm -hmm. um, that frontline management team. And I say the word management is typically promoted because of their technical skills or they've been in the yeah. role the longest and, and not necessarily set up for success when they do yeah. move into the. Yeah. So is it something, do you as a leader of, of a large organisation, uh, whether it be BAE or Nova Systems or University of South Australia, do you invest and look at that front, yeah. at that front line leadership and say, what is the capability? Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. You've got to select for that attribute. Yeah. Not that attribute only, because they have to have credibility in their, you know, whatever it is they're doing. Yeah. But the best electrician isn't going to be the best foreman. Isn't necessarily going to be the best Correct. foreman. Yeah. So you've also got not, to sit, not necessarily even want to be. He right? might not want to be. Exactly. And but he might want to be. He or yeah. she might want to be. So yeah. you've got to give them the tools if yeah. that's the case. You can't expect Correct. people. You know, you don't. You can manage. You can't lead a balance sheet, yeah. but you can manage one. Yeah. And leadership and management are two different things for me. Agreed. Too, yeah? so, so you've got to select for that, but you've also got to create a way of advancement in a company, particularly a large one, that means that you can fulfill your ambition without being a people leader. And there needs to be a set of technical streams that you can become the world's expert in left-hand double flange grommets. Mm -hmm. you know, if that's what you want to do, there's yep. a stream. That'll get you there. Yeah. Whenever I was running Anstor, I was chairman of Anstor. There were two. It was a very interesting company. So it was owned by the government, for the federal yeah. government first. And you had two, you had two lots of people, real in it. So you had a bunch of research scientists who wanted access to the reactor and the synchrotron, mm -hmm. right, to conduct experiments to advance knowledge and wisdom and learning. And then you had a bunch of guys making nuclear medicine. Right, so nuclear isotopes for the diagnosis and treatment mostly of cancers. Yep. Right, so yep. really important as well. Yeah. These, guys, these guys were effectively business people who yep. wanted the most efficient way of making nuclear medicine mm -hmm. and logistically getting it to wherever it had to get to and so on because it's got a half-life and all of that stuff. It's quite difficult stuff to move around as well. And these guys were scientists. And these guys were incentivized predominantly by traditional business incentives like bonuses, incentive yep. payments. These guys didn't really care that much about that. What they wanted was access to discretionary research money. Mm. So you had to treat them slightly different. They're both very valuable in doing different things. So sometimes you've got to create this path that lets them, without being people leaders, you know, most of these guys were highly introverted research scientists, mm. you know, 
who are much happier sitting in a room with half a dozen other research scientists pursuing an academic goal, which you might be able to commercialize at some point yeah. as well, but that, that wasn't their major goal. Yeah, the, the different types of personalities yeah. and people, isn't yeah. it, really? As you're growing through uh, and learning a little bit more about your own personal leadership styles, you obviously become more experienced in, in dealing with conflict, dealing with problems, dealing with people, dealing with strategy, all the above. Was there ever a point uh, in your career where imposter syndrome really stood out? The belief that maybe, well, the belief that, wow, I'm, I'm leading this company. I actually really don't know. Yeah, you know, <laughs> I, I'm going to say no to that, not in, a, in an arrogant sense, but the fact that my career was not either meteoric or um, there were never big uh, discontinuities. You know, you yeah. went from being the cleaner to the chief executive. Yeah, so not yeah, there was yeah. nothing wrong with being you didn't cleaner, jump. A, you didn't way. jump any steps. No, so you, it, was, took, yeah. it was a pretty progressive yeah. thing. So you've got the confidence of, you know, I've done a bit of that, and now I can do a bit of that, and now I can do a bit of that. Yeah, it's not. I'm really, really suspicious of people who come in at their first interview and say, "I want to be the chief executive." Yeah, you know, really. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you get a long way to go. <laughs> yeah. How did you learn about you know the the four pillars that you spoke of before, or the, or the three legs, and, and all experience and thinking yeah. about it. Experience and thinking about it. Now, experience is a great thing, particularly because most problems that I confront me today i've seen at, yeah. at some other point in the yeah. career, what's been a long career so mm -hmm. you think well i made a bit of a mess of doing it the last time but mm -hmm. i think i could, maybe should do it this way or that way or like that worked the last time it's likely to work this time but some they're never quite exactly the same so experience really 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 helps how do you manage the with that with that experience and I, I, I'd say now you're obviously the experience is is at a point where you just know the answer to this question. But at the time where you're early in your career and you're making decisions, there's this sense of urgency. I oh, know I want this done now, or I want this to be made quickly. I want this to be changed. We can't be seen this way. Yeah. Whatever it might be, yeah. the idea of doing things quickly. Uh -huh. um, how do you manage that process? You've got to figure out what's what's important and what's urgent and what's important and, and urgent and what's urgent but not important and mm. those and that's the, that's the hardest thing to, that was the hardest that's, thing that's for me i have a very very strong hurry up driver yeah yeah <laughs> and uh you know which is why i like to have a cfo who's a very very high be perfect driver yeah. so we're kind of different yeah, yeah. And, we're kind of, and that's how you do it you get people around you who are different than you are who think differently and give, give balance to the yeah. balance to the question I love that. So the importance of the team around yeah. you. How, how often do you rely on that team to... Yeah, well, you know, we meet every week. Yeah. Yeah, and I interact with them every day. Yeah. And I have one-on-ones with them every week. And that's yeah. the... I mean, much as I like sort of set-piece performance reviews, you should be giving people feedback every day. Every, day. every interaction you have with them, there should be a... Some of that should be about feedback. Spot on. Yeah. What about accountability thrown into all that? Capability. Uh, accountability. Accountability, yeah. Well, I, you know... That's about for me is about clarity, is about us both on both sides of the agreement, understanding what it is I expect of you, you expect of me, you know, and, and I can't hold someone accountable if I haven't given them the tools in Correct. order in order to exercise that. But accountability is really, really, really important because I 
you know, once you become the chief executive or, or leader, it doesn't have to be chief, of big things, mm-hmm. there's so little you can do on your own. You're, you're, all you're being judged on is the ability of the, the team and teams to produce what it is you said you're going to do. Mm. And I quite often have people who report to me at the enterprise level have no individual goals, have no individual measures, right? Mm. They only have they only have team measures mm. f- because one fail and all fail. Yeah. We'll all succeed if we all succeed in the individual things that we know we need to do. Yeah. So I tend to wait, particularly at the enterprise level, I tend to wait performance measures towards the team as opposed to towards the individual, mm. other than behavioral. And I've always had 50% of your discretionary, whatever discretionary in terms of your compensation is about what you do, and 50% is about how you do it. Mm. Yeah. Beatings will continue until morale improves. It's not a long-term you know, philosophy, yeah. leadership philosophy. Yeah, that's, did you did you have someone who sort of mentored you through this along your way? Or I've never actually had a mentor, but I've had people. I've worked for some really great people. Yeah, yeah, I've worked for some really great, different, and probably the biggest influence on me was the the last chief executive of BA. This group chief, of the global mm-hmm. chief executive of of, uh, of BA Systems, was a guy called Ian King. Mm. who's a Scottish accountant. You, know, you, don't get a, you don't get a worse type of accountant than that, I can tell you. Uh, but, and Ian was very different from me, but, but he showed me a whole load of stuff about how to run a successful business. Mm. If you're looking to learn off people like that, without the, obviously the, 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 the you know, inverted commas yeah. mentor, um, do, do you look for people who are different to you? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Because you kind of, you know yourself and you know what you can go, you can get good at. And you've yeah. got to find the other things that, yeah. that, that you need help to get good at. Mm-hmm. And particularly around financial discipline, planning, yeah. rigor, um, setting, you know, setting targets that had that, that you, you, can vi- you can do it, you can visualize you're doing it, but it's not easy, but yeah. it's not impossible. There's nothing worse than setting impossible goals because people are going to say, not going to pay any attention yeah. to that. I'm never going to do that. And th- that great, great balance of never, never, never disappointing on the downside and occasionally surprising on the upside. And that was, that effectively was Ian's, Ian's sort of magic pudding. Yeah, well. You mentioned earlier, actually, no, you didn't mention earlier, you mentioned on our, uh, before the podcast today that you normally like to park half an hour away and walk into the office every morning. I know that you read an hour in the morning, an hour at night or whatever it might be, whatever that time looks like. Um, a lot of that practice is about self-care, right? And and it helps you calm and, yeah. and find yourself in the moment. Yeah. Do you place a lot of emphasis on self-care? Me. A lot of it, I think uh, at various times I've been better at it than, you know, I used to used to run a lot, used to run every morning and most evenings as well. You yeah. know, I played soccer for a long time, I played field hockey for a long time. I, you know, I, uh, I've of recent years done much more meditation than mm-hmm. I would have done because mm-hmm. it's that balance between um, energy and calm mm-hmm. that, that, that gets you in the, gets you in the best in the, in the best place. But more and more, 
self-care, well-being. And when we talk about culture, when you talk to people about culture, they tend to talk about how they feel, mm. you know, how things make make them feel. Yeah. There's well-being, yeah. you know, as much as yeah. as much as anything. So I think there's more emphasis on that. Yeah. On that. If you were, if I was a young first-time CEO and said to you, Jim, what advice do you have for me going into my first role? Yeah. So, I guess first of all. Try to be authentic. And I know that's a bit trite, he says, but, but it's really hard being somebody that you're not. You can mm. do it for short periods of time, but it's really mm. hard to sustain. So try to be authentic. Get people around you who are different. Mm. Try and make sure you haven't got anyone on the team who could be mistaken for you. Yeah. yeah? yeah. And, and that's from being very different to being slightly different both in terms of how they think and, and what their what their experience. I hate the term lived experience because experience means lived. You can't yeah. can't be unlived experience. Yeah, that's right? Right, yeah. So so diversity of, of thought and diversity of, of experience is really real. And actually they mean the same thing because how you think is, is built up through your experience. Yeah. Through your experiences would be the two pieces of advice. Try and be optimistic and try and look optimistic and stay optimistic. And don't promise to do something you know you can't do. Yeah. You, know, you might say, I'm going to do this, and you know it's going to be a big stretch, and you mightn't quite get there, mm. but don't say you're going to do something that you know you can't do. Yeah. yeah. So two or three small things. Be polite, help others, do your best. Yeah. You know? Comes back. Yeah. Age-old wisdom yeah. from the mum, from your mum. Um, going to wrap up in, in a few moments we'll get we'll get to the quick fire questions but before i do that is there anything in your, on your mind right now that you have been thinking about that about the future of of australia and south australia is there anything in a positive way in a negative way something that comes to your mind that you you're pretty passionate about and you've been putting time and effort into thinking yeah, yeah, yeah. I think Australia, in, in in the area of endeavour that I work in, in defence and defence policy, has got, is on a real, real turning point. Mm. And we have spent the last twenty years fighting terrorists, effectively, in an asymmetric war in the Middle East. That's no longer the threat, mm. and we're going to have to really, really quickly change our thinking and how we respond to what we now see as the threat, whether it's real or not. As you know. Another matter, which is the growth of another superpower mm. in the region, who is our biggest trading partner. Mm. How do we never been in that situation before? How how do we deal with that? And it's not a black and white either, or it's quite a nuanced, sophisticated set of principles that we're going to have to yeah. we're going to have to come up with. But you know, I also think here we are. We know we've just changed government in South Australia. Um, we're likely to change them and perhaps there's quite a high possibility that we'll change the federal government. That'll be as smooth as anything we've seen, right? Mm. And we'll look at the United States, the la- you know, the greatest democracy in the world and all that nonsense about a stolen election and, you know, law, legal cases all over the place and mm. riots in the Capitol building, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Boy, you know, aren't we lucky that that, 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 that maturity of democracy is yeah. still present in Australia yeah, despite very- our different views. Very, very lucky. What does the future look like for Jim? Oh, I don't know, but I'm cracking on a bit. So I think I think another few years, you know, doing this, 
Um, I've just started a, a PhD, and um, that'll take me forever. It'll possibly <laughs> be the first posthumous PhD. Where do you find the time? Work, well, I'm, I haven't, not spending that much time on it at the moment. I'm easing myself into yeah. it, as they say. Um, I've got, a, you know, a, for a bloke of my age, I've got a relatively young son, so you know, I want to see him through uni and get yeah. him on the right path. And more about being a good person than, than anything else, and I hope, I hope that's the case. I'd like to help. And part of the bit in between leaving BA and um, coming back to work for Premier and Cabinet was doing stuff for government and doing, now they were paying me for it, and yeah. paying, as, as, as Senator Xenophon at the time yeah. said, paying yeah. me quite well. Yeah. But part of that was about giving back because I wasn't getting paid anything like I was getting in the private sector, yeah. by the way. And I still have to put bread on the table. Yeah. And well, you, it's pretty public what you were getting paid, and you think there's no way that's anywhere near no, where he would have uh, been. Yeah. So, so, so there's a bit about that. Look, I'm, I'm very committed to Australia. The reason why I came, the reason why I left BAE when I did was I didn't see another job. I'd mm. run Australia for 11 years. You know, taking it from three hundred million to just under two billion dollar revenue mm. for the, for the company, I'd gone and done the Saudi job, yeah. and I just wanted to come back to Australia and do something. And this, and you know, a few opportunities had presented themselves, and now this one. So I'm not thinking much further than that. I obviously want to keep reading, and I'd like to I'd like to do a bit of writing as well. So very good. Yeah, and just start your own podcast if you want to. Yeah. No, <laughs> <clears throat> Excellent. All right, we'll jump into the quick fire questions uh, as we wrap up. Uh, first question: What are you reading right now? Obviously, that could be multiple books. Yeah, well, I'm I'm reading a set of books by a guy called Abdul Aziz Gurna, who won the Nobel Prize in Literature last year. Yeah. And to my eternal shame, I have never heard of him before. Yeah, wow. So he's from Zanzibar, and he had he had lived quite a lot of his life in Kent. Teaches at the University of Kent at Canterbury. Mm. Uh, books about loss and belonging mm-hmm. of, of hope of one's homeland, particularly. Oh, yeah. yeah. Uh, so he's written a half a dozen books, and I'm working my way through them at the moment. Yeah, well, very relevant yeah. given the Ukraine. What now? You don't read management books, but yep. you say you read the odd fiction, a non-fiction yep. book. Yep. Is there a development book that you believe stands out from the crowd? Oh, well, again, it's not a development book, but if you want to, you know. Thucydides, which who wrote, you know, uh, whatever it was, two thousand years ago, yeah. his history of the Peloponnesian War. Yeah. Peloponnesian War ran for ran in the fifth century BC, ran for seventy years. All of life is in that. Yeah. All of life. So, what was the name again? His name is Thucydides. He's a good philosopher. Okay, yeah. And yeah. He, he, but he wrote a history of the Peloponnesian War. So check that out. That's on my. Yeah. That's on my hit list. I'm in love with that sort of literature. Uh, what is one lesson that's taking you the longest to learn? I don't know. I haven't learned it yet. <laughs> yeah, <you> still... <laughs> Very good. Yeah. I like that. Um, don't go back to the old pubs, right? Is that <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. If you could invite three people for dinner, who would they be? Abraham. Mm-hmm. So the, 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 effectively the, the progenitor, the godfather of the three great revealed religions in mm-hmm. the world, so mm-hmm. of Judaism, Christianity yep. and Islam. And so I'd like to ask him what he was up to, how did yeah. he manage to do that? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> it's good to keep one. Evelyn Waugh, who I mentioned before, uh, who's, yeah. who's an English author, he's a man, although he's called yeah. Evelyn. Yeah. 
uh, who wrote that sort of honor trilogy and yeah. Brideshead Revisited. Most people would know him for, but I kind of read all, all, of, his, all of his stuff uh, yeah. because he's a genius in my view yeah. and, and he's such a curmudgeon. Yeah. You know, it, it would be a really grumpy bloke to have a yeah. dinner and he would keep, and which, uh, which, uh, which amuses me. Yeah. So. I'd certainly like give him a few wines, maybe loosen up. And the third, yeah. so my, you know, the themes of my life are faith, um, literature, art, and literature. So literature, so faith is Abraham. Literature is even more, and art would be Caravaggio. So Caravaggio was, you know, the, one of the greatest of the Renaissance painters, and such a badass. Yeah, you know, he he was he had to flee Venice for murder and all that sort of thing, yeah. and, and painted these most beautifully detailed pictures of Venice and of of Christ and of John the Baptist. And I just sort of like to talk to Caravaggio about those two sides of his character and the sort of beauty and the violence. Yeah, wow. Yeah, that's amazing. What's uh, some of the best advice that you've ever received? Oh, be polite, help others, do your best. Yeah, can't go wrong with that. Mm -hmm. Be polite, help others, do, do your, your best. If you had access to a time machine, where would you go? It would be a whole year. It would be Warwick University, 1977, the year I graduated. Yeah. The most fantastic year. You know, of, you were you know, 21 years old. You didn't give a bugger. You yeah. thought you were smart. Yeah. Lovely girlfriend. Yeah. You know, the best summer ever of, of in, in England, particularly. Yeah. It was, you know, bliss was in that dawn to be alive. Yeah. To, bliss was in that dawn to be alive, but to be young was very heaven, which yeah. is Wordsworth talking about the French Revolution, but that's what it felt like. Yeah. So would you go back to relive that or would you go back to oh, go with back the to, idea? I wouldn't no, I wouldn't no. change a thing. Yeah. Wouldn't okay. change a thing. Yeah. Yeah, amazing. If your house was on fire and you had your family and pets that were safe, what would be the one item that you would uh, run mm. back in and grab? Well, it would probably be three items because I could carry the three. Yeah. Them. And it's, again, it's faith, art, and literature, mm -hmm. faith, literature, and art. So I'd go, I've got a second edition King James Bible, yep. which, which is beautiful. So yep. I'd get that. I've got a first edition sort of honor trilogy by yep. Evelyn yep. Waugh. Yep. So I'd get that. And I've got a really cheap little picture by George Connor in pastel called The Potato Girl, yep. which I just love. Yeah. And those are the three things, which is faith, literature, and art. Yeah. I would go and get. Amazing. If you had one superhero power, what would it be? Nah, there's none. There's no superheroes. It's only no. imagination. Yeah. yeah. Wouldn't want. Nah. No. 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 Don't entertain that idea. No. No. <laughs> do you have. My favorite question is do you have a dad joke that you can share with us? Yeah. Well, we can either do. <laughs> what do you call an Irishman in a suit? Well, what do you call an Irishman in a suit? The accused. <laughs> the accused. <laughs> and I can say that. You can, say, can that. say that. There was another podcast we had. I won't say the names, but there was another podcast yeah. you said where uh, this person said yeah. they uh, got that joke from you. Yeah. It's another uh, really stupid one that my first wife used to tell. She used to, she used to yeah. laugh at it every time herself too, and it's terrible. So it's really a mum joke. And it's a guy... Walks into a bar and he stands beside this gi giraffe and the giraffe's drinking pints like nobody's business. <laughs> giraffe falls on the floor unconscious and another guy comes in, steps over the giraffe and said to the barman, what's that lion there? And he says, it's not a lion, it's a giraffe. <laughs> 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 I have heard that one. I love okay. that one. Yeah. yeah. What's yeah. that lion there? It's, it's not a lion, it's a giraffe. Beautiful. Thank you so much for your time today, Jim. And and thank you for, I think, everything that you have done for Australia, obviously, in the defence uh, sector and the, the businesses that you've led and obviously all, all that you've achieved. Um, 
Definitely, uh, definitely a privilege to be sitting here speaking to you. So thank you very much. No, thanks. Really, thanks for asking me. You know, it must be people must have very little to do if they're going to listen to this. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's a dig at my podcast, Joe. <laughs> no, no, it's not. It's a, it's, it's, but uh, no, that's great. And it'd be, actually, if you send me a link, I'll send it to everybody. Yeah, do that. <laughs> yes, absolutely. I think it's uh, it's definitely a podcast that needs to be shared and, and listened to widely. So if people wanted to get in contact with you, where could they find you or follow you? Yeah, well, certainly I'm, you know, on either Facebook or LinkedIn. Would yeah. be, LinkedIn would probably be the best yeah, way in a businessy sense to get hold of me. Excellent. Beautiful. Thanks again for your time and um, we'll catch you next time, everyone. Lovely. Thank you very much. Cheers. Cheers. Thanks for listening to the podcast all. You can check out the show notes if there was anything of interest to you and find out more about us at synergyiq.com.au. I am going to ask though, if you did like the podcast, it would absolutely mean the world to me if you could subscribe, rate and review. And if you didn't like it, that's all right too. There's no need to do anything. Take care, guys. All the best. Thank you once again for joining us here at Creating Synergy. It's been great spending this time with you. Please jump on to the Synergy IQ Facebook and LinkedIn page where the discussion continues after the show. Join our mailing list so you'll know what's happening next at synergyiq.com.au. And of course, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast. And if you really enjoyed it, please share it with your friends.